0: Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the 79th edition of the Digital Edge, Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Jim Calloway,
2: director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is, When Lawyers Get Divorced, Ethically Breaking Up a Law Firm. We are happy to welcome Tom Spawn, often known as Mr. Ethics in Virginia, Tom practices as a commercial litigator in the Tyson's Corner office of McGuire Woods. He has served on the ABA Standing Committee on Ethics and Professionalism and has spoken over 1,200 times on ethics and other topics in the United States and abroad. Thanks for joining us today, Tom.
3: Thank you, Jim and Sharon, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, let's start out, Tom, by having you tell us what steps can a lawyer take if he or she is planning on leaving a law firm but doesn't, surprisingly, yet want to tell the law firm?
3: Uh, It's a good question, Sharon, and and a lot of uh, lawyers face this as mobility increases. There's really two competing principles uh, that I think apply in other businesses uh, other than law but apply most acutely with our profession. One principle is our fiduciary duties to our partners in our law Mm -hmm. firm And, of course, that would uh, make you think that you have to just keep plugging away and and, uh, not do anything to even begin to compete with the law firm. But the other duty that we have is a duty to our clients. And uh, as I'll mention later, we can't have a non-compete. We're the only profession that can have non-competes. And so that duty to clients, and, and the, what I think is sort of the fiction that we're not totally fungible <laughs> it is the, the fiction that our, our profession recognizes that if I get run over by a bus today, there's not 10,000 other lawyers that could do exactly what I'm doing. That fiction leads us to uh, some really tough issues. The, if, if you're leaving or planning to leave the law firm but haven't told the law firm and don't no want to tell the law firm yet, I would say this. First, you should always comply with the Partnership and Employment Agreements, for instance, unless they're trumped by the ethics requirements. You have to to keep working full time for the law firm, and I think it would, you would be wise not to use the law firm's resources uh, to start to plan to compete. You have to be careful, I think, if you're in management, and this has come up a couple times. For instance, it would, I think it would be improper to vote, uh, let's say, to, to lease a new office building uh, knowing that uh, two weeks later uh, you're going to be leaving the firm, for instance, and you expect other people to leave the firm with you. So you have to be careful when you do that. I think that what you can do is to get ready to compete, uh, just like you can in, the, in in other situations. You can run office space. You can uh, probably order stationary things of that sort. The real rub comes uh, with whether you can tell the clients you're leaving before you tell the law firm that you're leaving, and that really has evolved over the years. There's a, there's a general trend toward emphasizing the duty to the clients which is of course what we do and so it shouldn't come as a surprise that that's the that's the the main uh uh, concern that we should have i think up till recently most lawyers thought they couldn't tell the clients that they're leaving uh, until they told a law firm they're leaving but the most recent ethics opinions uh, say that that's okay and think you may have a duty to tell the clients you're leaving because they're the ones that we that we serve. So that's the issue. I think it'd be very careful if I were you to check your bar opinions in your state uh, or even the rules here in Virginia, for instance, uh, the our the Supreme Court's considering a rule that would prohibit uh, lawyers from telling their clients they're leaving until they tell the firm. That would really be a minority position, I would say, uh, but, but be sure to check the rules on this one. And, and that's where where the real the rubber hits the road is uh, is whether you can tell the clients because most lawyers don't want to leave before they. Tell the before they know where the clients are coming. I can tell you from uh McGuire Woods from dealing with it both ways people coming to us from other firms and people leaving us that there's usually very few clients in play. Um, most of the time, if I were to ask the lawyer and the law firm those situations, which uh firm the client will go with, will, it, will the client leave the firm, will the client stay with the firm, and and they write it down secretly, uh, both sides of it, the, the withdrawing lawyer and the law firm, they would agree on 95% of the time. So, uh, the lawyer can take steps to plan to compete, can actually compete, has to fulfill all the fiduciary duties, and, and probably can tell, in most states, probably can tell the clients, uh, but of course can't badmow the firm when they tell the clients. Once the law firm knows that one or more of its lawyers plan to leave, what must, should, or can the law firm do? Well, that's sort of the other side of the coin, Jim. And uh, the law firm has the same considerations, that if the client always comes first, the client gets to decide, every client gets to decide uh, where the client wants to go. Uh, And most courts, uh, most bars, I should say, have encouraged and sometimes I think even required. uh, For instance, Florida has a rule uh, that requires, if I'm not mistaken, the law firm and and the lawyer to sit down and try to agree on a joint communication, which makes the most sense, frankly. Uh, to go to each of the clients uh, that, the, that the withdrawing lawyer is responsible for or works for. That's another thing that the law firms don't understand is that uh, even if the client responsible lawyer for let's say salary purposes or partnership share purposes uh, is somebody, uh, let's say Joe, uh, if Mary is working on a matter for the client, Mary uh, has the right and probably the duty to tell the client at some point that she's leaving because that's a material fact for the for the client to know that Murray's leaving, and, and so uh, the, the firm might say, well, wait a minute, you can't, you can't talk to the client there. You're not the responsible lawyer, but it's matter by matter, not client by client. Most bars say that if the law firm and the lawyer can't agree in a joint communication, then they can go out unilaterally, and that's often what happens. But even then, whoever, whether it's joint or whether it's unilateral, there always has to be three choices given to every client. It has to be you, you can stay with the firm, uh, you can go with the withdrawing lawyer, or you can pick somebody else, and you can't badmouth the other side. So however it works, uh, the, the law firm or the lawyer have to always give those choices because Whatever we do, uh, the client always comes first.
1: Uh Uh-huh. And nobody ever badmouths the other guy, do they, Dom? (laughs)
3: I've never badmouthed you, for instance.
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, what we know is ethically required is not necessarily what happens. (laughs) That's
3: for sure. You bet. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So... I know that like most lawyers, I am terrible with numbers. So you may want to slow that New York freight train voice of yours down and explain to us slowly if folks leave a law firm, if folks leave a law firm, can the law firm adjust any return of capital, payouts, et cetera, based on what the new lawyers or lawyers will be doing after they leave?
3: Okay, Uh, part of it's my New York upbringing, part of it's uh, Diet uh, Dr. Pepper, Sharon, but I'll try to slow (laughs) down if I can. Um, Like I mentioned, uh, we are the only profession that can't have a non-compete, and it's it's remarkable to me that uh, pediatric heart surgeons can have non-competes. People that save folks' lives can have non-competes. We can't uh, under this this fiction that I mentioned earlier. So law firms uh, being run by clever lawyers have found other ways to try to get essentially non-compete, to try to financially um, penalize lawyers who leave the firm and compete with the firm. Now, it it would be perfectly okay, I think, for law firms to say, well, if you leave the firm, you don't get your capital back. Everybody can agree to that. Um, Or they might say, you you don't get a bonus this year, for instance, as long as the law firm treats everybody the same way. But of course, law firms don't want to treat everybody the same way, because uh, they don't want to financially penalize somebody who becomes a judge and is going to be sitting on their cases. They don't want to penalize someone who's going to become the general counsel of their largest client. And so uh, in almost the endless imagination of lawyers, bars have struck down one after the other penalties, uh, financial penalties uh, that are disguised as something else, supposedly even-handed, but uh, based on whether somebody competes. And those even include, for instance, notice provisions. Uh, uh, law firms are having increasingly lengthy notice provisions, and it, that's yet another example of, uh, as long as it's evenly handled, uh, the same for everybody, it may be okay, but the extent at which it's not evenly handed and, and it penalizes just those who compete, it probably is not okay. So financially and otherwise, uh, the law firm can't treat people differently because they compete.
2: Okay, that was really clear. Great job. That was really clear. I was taking notes while I was listening to you, Tom. If a name partner in the firm leaves, then what happens to the law firm's use of his or her name on a going forward basis? Well, this is,
3: I guess, not surprising, Jim, but uh, it would be misleading for a law firm to have the name of a, of a partner in the law firm who was actually uh, working as a lawyer in other areas, that is, was competing in the in – the, uh, or either, maybe even not competing, but still practicing law. I know that D.C. Uh, is, I think, the only jurisdiction that allows – the same name to be in two different law firms, which is astounding to me. But that's why there's a Steptoe and Johnson in D.C. and a Steptoe and Johnson in West Virginia, which I always wondered about till I started researching this. Uh, but the the name, uh, if the if the named partner uh, leaves the firm and still practices law, uh, then the law firm can't use the name. And there can be really valuable um, assets, or an asset could be the name. As recently as just a couple months ago, the Ninth Circuit dealt with a an, yet another fight over johnny cochran's name because everybody wants to use his name it's it's so valuable um and so that there'll be a a temptation for the law firm to keep using the name but they can't use it if the if the partner who is withdrawn continues to practice law now if the partner becomes a minister or a teacher or something then most bars would allow that uh, one thing that's really interesting to me, and, and this is, I know, a high-tech, sort of a digital edge broadcast here, the Virginia Bar, and I had nothing to do with it because I, I don't really fully understand these things, but March 20th of 2014, the Virginia Bar was the first bar to deal with uh, the use of a domain name and whether a law firm, in the case of Smith & Jones in the hypothetical uh, before the bar, Smith & Jones, uh, one leaves or they break up, um, they don't have to immediately stop using the domain name. Instead, they have to keep it there for a while so that people visiting uh, the website will then learn on the website that Jones has left and is now practicing out somewhere else. My guess would be every bar would take that approach, but uh, it's good that some bars are stepping up and dealing with the digital part of that uh, name issue, Jim.
1: If a law firm is splitting into two new firms rather than a situation in which some lawyers leave a firm, who gets to use the old firm 's name Tom
3: that could be really important too Sharon for the for the same reason, uh, and there 's some really almost humorous cases over the use of the name. I know there 's a South Carolina uh, Supreme Court case decided in 2009 where uh, the widow of the founder of the Janiliat Savitz and Bettis firm, Mrs. Janiliat, the widow of the founder, tried to stop the firm from using her husband's name um, and they said, well, wait a minute, we have an agreement uh, that you could you could do that after he died. And this is what the Supreme Court said. Mrs. Janiliat testified that her deceased husband visited her in a dream and said that he did not <laughs> mind if the law firm could discontinue this of his name. The Supreme Court said this ghostly visit is not Revocation of consent. So uh, <laughs> people fight over this. It's, it's ironically, we go out of the ethics world, I think, when a firm splits up and we go into the property world. And I think it becomes a property issue of who gets it. And I know there's been fights over it, mostly. In, in the plaintiffs' law firm side, because plaintiffs' firms have uh, invest so much uh, from billboards to advertisements and getting a name brand. Uh, I mean, law firms like McGuire Woods spend money too, I guess. But uh, we hope we don't split up. But the uh, the plaintiffs use a lot of um, justifiably use a lot of money to build a brand, and so they really want to protect the name. Uh, and if they split up, that could be a real issue. There's even Lanham Act cases. I don't. I'm not familiar with the Lanham Act, but Some law firm names have acquired a secondary meaning, so I think you look to property law for that one, Sharon.
1: (laughs) Well, there, of course, is uh, the law firm known as MoFo (laughs) and its domain name. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought that was was an interesting choice of a domain name.
2: (laughs) Tom, let me have one quick follow-up on that. If the law firm splits into two new firms, are there differences with the way the clients are treated?
3: no there really there really isn 't a difference the the uh, I just read an ethic being i can 't remember where it was from that that confirms that every partner has a continuing duty to make sure all the clients are adequately served. In other words, there may be some clients nobody wants um, uh, If when the firm splits up or, or sometimes the, the withdrawing lawyer will say, I don't want that client, you keep the client. But the <laughs> clients don't belong to the firm. They don't belong to the withdrawing lawyer. And so everybody's got a fiduciary duty. Uh, ideally, what would happen, I think, is that each client would decide, I guess, much like kids would decide which, which parent to live with. Of course, there's no court supervision of the clients. But the real issue there, I think, is what the def- default position would be, and I, I don't know what that would be. I think it would depend on the state's law, Jim, of which, when I say the default position, if you don't hear from the client, uh, who maintains the, the client's um, the responsibility to the client. It's easy if you can get in touch with the clients, but uh, when the firm splits up, every client's got to be accounted for one way or the other, I think, or all the lawyers are going to be on the hook for some problems.
1: You know, this ends up being such a mess in most real-life breakups that I often think they ought to resort to rock, scissors, paper, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Just just divide them up that way, because it takes forever. Nobody's happy, you know, and everybody ends up, or a lot of people end up violating ethical admonitions while they're they're doing all this. Breaking up is hard to do for lawyers.
3: You're right, but but the rock, paper, scissors is my level of technology, so I'm delighted to
1: use (laughs) that one. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that would work for you, Tom. Let's pause for a commercial break, and then we'll be right back.
0: Visit www.servnow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
1: Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is when lawyers get divorced, ethically breaking up a law firm. And our guest is Tom Spahn, an internationally known ethics presenter and a commercial litigator with McGuire Woods in its Tyson's Corner office. So if a firm does split up, what happens to the client's files? And since most files are digital, are there ethical implications about splitting up data?
3: The client's files are, are a fascinating issue to me because for what the most most lawyers uh Keep way too much, and uh, and and I've even spoken on this issue, Sharon and Jim. You've probably seen this, where law firms will very, will very carefully help their clients get a document retention program, which is kind of an odd, <laughs> which is an odd name for that one. Um, and then uh, and so the client's kind of happily and um, with great relief, uh, but perfectly appropriately and ethically and legally destroy documents, but the law firm keeps them. That's a problem. So we always end up with um, sometimes hundreds of thousands of boxes of documents, as the Brobeck-Flager firm did when it, it went bankrupt. The, the good news, I guess, is that if it's digital, it's a lot cheaper to maintain, for sure. But um, most law firms have a document retention program. It's best to put that in the retainer. But if the, uh, that, that is how long you're going to be keeping the files. And, of course, the clients are always entitled to their files in nearly every state, either the, the, the final product of what the law firm's work has been, or sometimes the whole file. And that's the trend in, in nearly every state. But anyway, if if the firm breaks up and there's lots of files, um, I would say that the file should follow the clients first. If the clients go somewhere, that law firm, the one that's, uh, the survivor that gets the clients, um, that the clients choose should get the files that go with those clients. If they, if there's some clients that are left between, uh, the law firms, or you don't hear back from them, then there may be some default position of who gets the client. But I would, I would be very wary of destroying the files during the breakup, um, if just because you haven't heard from the client. And usually, a law firm before it destroys a file will will pull out the estate uh, documents, the bonds, the things that might have historical value in the future. That is, they. it's not just a litigation file and and the litigation's over. With the digital one, Sharon, it seems to me that's easier. Both it's cheaper and because law firms, lawyers can keep a client's file a copy of it, even over the client's objection, which is really odd. And when you think about it, usually the client is the is the sovereign. But uh, bars are smart enough to know that that uh, if it's a, if it's a client that wants to cover something up, you're not going to want to, uh, as a lawyer, turn over the file, the only copy of it, to the client and have the client destroy it. I think digitally uh, it would be okay for both successor law firms to maintain uh, a copy of the file if they needed to, and even if they, maybe if they didn't need to, but they'd have to keep it safe and secure, which, of course, is your job.
2: Todd, this next issue bedevils uh, state bar ethics councils all across the country as they get calls on this topic. What happens to contingency fee arrangements where some work has been done, but the matter has not yet been
3: settled? Well, yeah, that's turning to money now, which is where all things either start or stop, Jim. But uh, this is counterintuitive, too. When when a law firm uh, breaks up uh, or the client uh, fires the lawyer or the lawyer withdraws, the The contingent fee arrangement is um, is no longer operative in that sense, and I think what happens then uh in, in the case of a law firm breakup, unless there's a prearranged um, uh, some position that they both have agreed to, and of course, I think the client would have to agree to it too they would they would probably go to I think a quantum merit approach, these things always negotiate out. As, as Sharon said, there's some, usually some bad feelings, but usually they, they negotiate out among the partners. But I think the contingent fee uh, comes in. Uh, that, in other words, that deal continues as to the, the predecessor law firm. Uh, the money comes to some place and then is divvied up quantum merit wise between the, 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 uh, the, the law firm that worked on it and maybe the, the, the lawyers that have the law firm that, that didn't work on it as much. That sort of thing. It, it doesn't change the contract between, I probably said this wrong, it doesn't change it between the, the, the lawyer uh, and the client, uh, the lawyer being the, the sort of the entity that's now split, but dividing it up. Um, I think that the 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 partners would end up now former partners end up negotiating it out by using a quantum merit approach.
1: Well, I've kind of got a riff on Jim's question: What happens to the money that was to be earned on an hourly basis for work that is not yet finished? Does that go the same way?
3: Well, there's the unfinished business doctrine that comes uh, when a company when a, when a law firm has gone into bankruptcy and the lawyers leave, um, and that's being played out in the in the world of Dewey and some of the other law firms uh, that have. Gone bankrupt. The most recent opinion did not follow what's called the unfinished um, uh, business doctrine, and I should explain what that is uh, as slowly as I can, Sharon. But the thank you, Tom. I'll try the unfinished business doctrine. uh, To me, is uh, again doesn't make any sense. It says that. Um, let's say you're halfway through an hourly basis, kind of a big matter, and the, the, uh, the law firm goes bankrupt and all the lawyers scatter and then continue to finish at another law firm, finish... The hourly basis um, uh, manner. The new law firm, which of course is only being paid for what it did once the lawyers were there. The unfinished business doctrine says that that law firm, the successor law firm, the ones where the lawyers went to, has to pay the bankrupt estate uh, the profit, the money that 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 they earned uh, hourly, hour by hour when the lawyers were at that firm, it's not like a contingent fee arrangement or anything. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the new law firm is just, is just being paid for what it did. The bankrupt estate didn't do any of the work that the, the money uh, is attributed to that comes into the new law firm. So in any event, I think that the... Uh, the way it would work if it if it uh, if it breaks up, uh, as opposed to going into bankruptcy. If it goes into bankruptcy, that's what we're talking about. But if it breaks up, I think that the each successor firm, if it goes into two firms, would just be earning the money uh, that it. Um, that it earns on a going-forward basis, hour by hour. But the unfinished business doctrine, which arises and was limited so far to the bankruptcy setting, I think might affect that analysis uh, because it, it, it certainly affects it in the bankruptcy world. I
2: think the rule here, Tom, is you think it's bad negotiating with your aggrieved partners, try negotiating with the bankruptcy trustee. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, the final piece of the puzzle on money, what happens to accounts receivable?
3: Well that's the same thing, uh, I think, as we had before, like uh, with the contingent fee arrangement, it seems to me that the as the money has, has keeps rolling in, the partners allocate it, uh, and they probably would squabble for a while and finally settle. But I would think a court looking at uh, allocating a contingent fee would look at uh, who put the hours in, and if um, let's say there were five uh, four lawyers and two of them uh, started their own firm when the firm broke up, and, and two of them start their own firm. If the two that did all the work in the case um, uh, they would get the contingent fee that came rolling in later, I would think uh, because they're the ones that did the work. Uh, the other two would not would not share in that uh, that 's what I would think that 's the way it would probably negotiate out, and I think a court would say uh, the same thing maybe i 'm wrong about that, depending on the states, but with the accounts receivable, I think it would be the same thing i would I would think that the way to approach that, again, either through negotiation, if you can get it done, or a court looking at it, would be to look uh, sort of lawyer by lawyer to decide uh, who did the work on it. That's ultimately what happens when the client fires the lawyer, uh, when the lawyer fires the client. Uh, when uh, Once the money comes in, you start looking at the, let say, in a quantum meruit approach, which looks at the at the value of the time that's billed. And that's a, another reason why most lawyers affect nearly, every lawyer, even a plaintiff's lawyer working on the contingent fee arrangement, ends up keeping the hours because you might need that to split up not just the contingent fee that rolls in later, but uh, the accounts receivable.
1: Well, we've just proven the truth of Neil Sedaka's song, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. (laughs) <laughs> Tom, I want to thank you for being with us today. Um, you know, we've never, for whatever reason, Jim, we've never tackled this topic before. But I know that as as we, we see law firms being shaken up all the time, which I think really started in earnest in 2008, and now every time you turn around, you read about partners leaving and firms emerging and everybody's going this way and that way and half of my contacts are bad because the lawyers are some other place and some other firm. So all of this has really gotten a lot of... Uh, play recently, and people are really interested in listening to it. So it was a great joy to have a true expert in all this join us today. So thanks for taking the time, Tom.
3: Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Jim.
1: And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks for
2: joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon.
1: Happy trails, cowboy.
0: Thanks for listening to The Digital Edge.